Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News. And now let's get it started. Time for the Jack Riccardi Show. All right, Christian, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. And um, I want to get right into this. Um, the uh, Have you seen the mayor of East Palestine, Ohio? He's, he's a man named Trent Conaway. He, if you've seen him on television, he, he looks like exactly what he is. He, he's a guy that, that isn't a politician and uh, took the mayor's job because somebody had to do it. It's a small town, and when you're the mayor of a small town like that, it's just the basics, right? You know, just getting things done, making things work. Well, all of a sudden, East Palestine, Ohio is the focus of the entire world. And so he was on television saying that the Biden trip to Ukraine was, quote, the biggest slap in the face, unquote, for his town. So remember, the president made the supposedly surprise trip, although we told Russia, so it wasn't a surprise to them, but he made the surprise trip to Ukraine uh, and then to Poland, where he is today. And uh, Mayor Conway was on television saying that was the biggest slap in the face that tells you right now he doesn't care about us he can send every agency he wants but i found out this morning and in one of the briefings that he was in ukraine giving millions of dollars away to people over there not to us and i'm furious yeah he said president's day in our country he's over in ukraine what do you think about that 210-599-5555 well i'll tell you i when you when you think about the way politicians operate and how they make their decisions, you would think it would be obvious that your first priority would be people that could vote for you. Nobody in Ukraine can vote for Joe Biden. But then when you also think that politicians really love adulation and adoration, going to Ukraine is like going to Disney World for Joe Biden. He can pretend, you know, when kids go to Disney World, they, they pretend they're meeting, you know, Snow White or they're meeting, uh, you know, whoever their favorite character is and Mickey Mouse is giving them a hug and whatnot. He can go to Ukraine and pretend he is this tough, Reagan-esque uh, president striding the world stage. He can talk about unlimited funds. We're going to give Ukraine whatever it needs for however long it needs it. There's no end there's no limit. We'll do anything and everything. We'll stand with you forever. He can say that stuff because there's really no reality to it. You know? There's no, in actual fact, none of that's true. We're not going to stand with them forever. And there's not an unlimited amount of stuff we can give them. We're already running out of stuff to give them. But it feels good. You get the press. You get the adoration. You get the, this is historic. Palestine, Ohio, is like the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts. This is what the job is really about, but it's not very glamorous. Look, I'm not a, a big fan of presidents having to go somewhere to, to do something about a problem. Like, I don't think we should have presidents rolling into every town that's had a tornado or a hurricane. That's absurd. That's a crazy 
modern construct. We never used to do that. We never expected presidents to do that before about the last, I would say, 30 or 40 years. But, but be that as it may, now that that is the expectation, that's why he, that's why he hasn't gone to Ohio. And that's why he's in Ukraine promising them everything. The other thing uh, here to keep in mind is um, they're going to say um, that the railroad is is going to pay for everything. The railroad is, is on the hook. I saw the governor of Ohio a few minutes ago on television saying that, that this is all on them. They're going to have to do it. All of this is going to be on them. I am I am a skeptic about that. I understand what they're saying. I understand why they're saying that. I'll believe that when I see it. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'll believe that when I see it. Now, about Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has every right to defend itself and its territory and its people, and they're doing a magnificent job of it. They don't have every right to our money and our material. They don't have the right to pursue a war without end. They don't have a right to go all the way to Moscow, as their security director said the other day. And maybe he got a little carried away, and people do. But um, here's what they have a right to, okay? Here's what Ukraine has a right to. They have a right to ask. They have a right to expect. But they also have a right, uh, they, they also have a limit. And the limit is, this war is going to end with some kind of compromise. This war is going to end with some kind of face saver for both sides. So they're not going to get everything they want. They're not going to go to Moscow. They're not going to, you know, it, it, it's, and if we're not telling them that privately, we're certainly not telling them that publicly. What we're saying publicly is we are with you no matter what, no matter how. And I've had people say to me, why do you object to that? Because isn't that what Reagan said? To Poland in 1981 or to the, uh, you know, captive nations during the Cold War. And it is. And, and, and Biden is, is channeling Reagan right now. You can see that. You can, if you watch his speeches over there, he is aping. It's a bad impression, but he is aping, you know, tear down this wall, Reagan. The difference is that in the 1980s, the Soviet Union really was our absolute ultimate you know, nemesis. And it made sense to say to the countries that were stuck in the middle, we will, we will stand by you because we were trying to starve the Soviet military and the Soviet economy. Today, as you heard Jed Babin say on this show yesterday, the Soviet military is a second rate or third rate operation. They're not what they used to be. And, and there's no way you can look at the world we live in now and say that Russia is more of a danger, more of a threat than China is. The China of Reagan's era was kind of an ally. Reagan had great relations with China because he was playing them against Russia. And they were happy to be played against Russia. But to talk about Russia today with the same um, vigor and commitment that we had 40 years ago is to deny what Russia is today and to pretend that China doesn't even exist. Everything we do that overpays the conflict with Russia weakens us in what we eventually are going to deal with with China. And so that's why I, I, I think this, I, I think it's, I think it's crazy and unrealistic to say the things he's saying.
Um, I don't think that, um, by the way, he's over there also saying that uh, the the alliance, the NATO alliance is strong. The, the NATO alliance is us. We've done all that. We're doing all that. You're paying for it. The Europeans can clap themselves on the back. But do you really think if we had washed our hands of Ukraine that NATO, the other NATO members, would have done all the things and provided all the things that we've done? Do you really think that? No one does, right? 210-599-5555. So we're going to talk about that. I wrote about this at KTSA.com today. I don't know if you've seen this or not. Do you know who Roald Dahl is? Roald Dahl is a famous British author. He was a war hero in World War II, and he became a very prolific author of not only children's books like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and uh, James and the Giant Peach, but he wrote a, a number of novels and screenplays and movies and all kinds of things. Very, very prolific writer uh, in England uh, from uh, basically, I'd say, the 1930s and 40s uh, up until I think he died in 1980 or 1990. Um, he's in the news this week, Dahl is, because his publishing company has announced that they are going to clean up his books. They are making what they describe as hundreds and hundreds of changes to address reader sensitivity. And what does that mean? Well, he was known for his colorful descriptions of characters and settings and uh, very imaginative. I mean, think about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, that's just a, a wild story, right? Vivid imagery, vivid character description. Well, the word fat will no longer appear on any page of any Roald Dahl book. So Augustus Gloop is not fat. The words crazy, white, black, ugly, all will disappear, no matter what they're re- referencing. Male characters are being turned into female characters, and female villains are being made less mean. The words father and mother are gone. Now they're parents. And there's a lot more, but you get the idea. So they've made all these changes to his books, which means that you will pick up a copy of a book with his name on the cover, but those will not be his words inside the cover. And the times we live in, that probably doesn't surprise you that much. Now, there's only one way this works, or they get away with this. The only way they get away with this is that people are not reading old books anymore, or not not enough people are. Because if you read old books, you're familiar with how the usage of words has changed and evolved over time, and different depictions of race or gender have changed over time. You know that if you pick up a book from 40 or 50 or 70 or 150 years ago, they're going to say things and use words that would be unacceptable and wouldn't land well today. But in their time, this is how people talked. I was reading a mystery, a British mystery novel from the 1950s. One of those little old lady mystery writers. And right smack dab in the middle of this British mystery novel, she uses the N-word. And it kind of stops you in your tracks. Like, what? what? But then you realize in the, in the context of the character... And where he's from, and what's going on in the era, it's probably how people talked. 
And when you read an old book, you read it in the context of the time it was written. It doesn't mean I'm going to start using that word because I read the book. I'm also not going to kill somebody because that happened in the book too. You don't know if you would have talked that way in the 1950s or 40s or 30s. You don't know. Maybe you would have. Maybe everyone around you was. No one thinks reading an old book by Roald Dahl or anybody else is going to make you more racist. But that's what they're pretending. And so they've appointed themselves, people that have never created anything, one one hundredth as creative as his books. They've never done anything like him. They've appointed themselves the new censors. There's a great quote by Ray Bradbury, the sci-fi writer. He wrote a uh, probably the best book about censorship that's ever been written called Fahrenheit 451. And the irony of Fahrenheit 451 is it's about censorship, and his publisher censored it. They actually changed his manuscript uh, right before publication without checking with him, and he went to his grave furious that they had changed his book. But anyway, he, he once said, there's more than one way to burn a book. And that's what's happening right now. That's what we're doing right now. And then I don't know if you saw this story or not, but there's a anti-terrorism program in the UK called Prevent. And it's basically one of those um, see something, say something programs. But they have made a list, uh, a reading list, uh, that helps you figure out if somebody is too right-wing or extremist. And on the reading list, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, George Orwell, and other great works of English literature, as well as classic BBC comedies and movies. So from Shakespeare to the classics, things like Tolkien, Huxley, Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent, G.K. Chesterton, the movies The Bridge Over the River Kwai and The Great Escape, these are indications that you're a dangerous right-wing extremist. The irony is that Anti-terrorism is supposed to be about protecting Western civilization from savage Islamic terrorists that want to destroy it. But now, in the name of protecting us from terrorism, this government organization or or, or um, program is targeting the bedrock of Western civilization, the things that, as historian Andrew Roberts said recently, these are the books that would make you an intelligent, well-read person. But now these are the books that are labeled as red flags for right-wing extremism. So I do think the way they get away with it, I'm sorry to say this, is that there'll be a lot more people who will hear about this stuff but have never actually read it. Because it's only if you've read it that you would know how wrong this is and how crazy this is and and how dangerous this is. We're going to talk about that. 210-599-5555. Do you fault President Biden for going to Poland and Ukraine, but not going to East Palestine, Ohio? Uh, The mayor there, some of the residents angry that the president is uh, abroad giving away money, uh, but uh, has avoided uh, a major environmental event, disaster, uh, right here in this country. Uh, Obviously, they're two different things, but um, you would think uh, it would be kind of important to maybe pass through, you know. So, um, years ago, when ebooks were coming along and becoming popular, 
People used to say, and I was one of them, that one of the the potential problems with ebooks would be that um, you could stealth edit them, and people might not notice because you don't have a hard copy of it in your hands that was printed at a particular point in time. What you what you have when you have an ebook is something that's constantly accessible and changeable. I don't think that's an issue anymore. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I think we can stop worrying about ebooks because uh this publishing company is called Puffin is doing this right out in the open. They are they they hired people to comb through and that's the word they use, not read, comb through the works of their most um profitable author. Do you know that Roald Dahl as recently as 2021 was the best-selling deceased author in the world because of all those children's books and all those other classics that he wrote and screenplays and everything else. So they take their they take this guy that's that's a major moneymaker. They go through it and they take out all the stuff that you know was clear and and crisp and declarative and descriptive. I mean I'm not the world's biggest fan of his books, uh, but I, I respect the man's work. I mean, it was, it's incredible. The generations of people that have, that have read and loved his books. And, and, and I mean, I'm not saying I hate them. I'm just not, he's not one of my personal favorites, but I get it. I mean, people love this guy and they love the, the, the colorful characterizations sort of in the same way that Dr. Seuss is a master of using language and words and creating vivid imagery. These are not changes that Dahl was asked about because he's dead. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have given them permission if he'd been alive. And among other things, somebody pointed out today, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, I said, you know, these will make these books more boring. That's true. And sad. We claim to care about kids and want to engage them and get them reading, but these are the kinds of books that get kids interested in reading, and you're making them duller grayer but it also tells us a little something about the kind of people that enjoy and are proud of because this wasn't done secretively they weren't they weren't caught doing this they announced they were doing this this is their um this is if you will their creativity we now live in a world where taking down taking apart defacing, dismantling other people's works, their sculptures, their paintings, their writings, is itself an art form. These people consider themselves artists. They are improving society. We didn't elect them. They elected themselves. And it is interesting when you think about what we were told 20 years ago after 9-11, that Western civilization was under attack, that, that the, the bedrock of Western, the Western world, the Judeo-Christian world, was under attack, and it was. And, and make no mistake, uh, Islamic terrorism does want to set it all on fire and burn it all down. But it seems to me that it's also under attack by the people we thought were helping us defend it. Didn't see that one coming.
So I got to tell you how this happened. Um, I've been reading Corey DeAngelis for a long time and, and the stuff that he writes about school choice. And, um, he got into this dispute, um, on Twitter. I know he'll know what I'm talking about. Um, with a woman who was claiming that he, uh, he was talking about school choice in Texas and she was dinging him saying, well, you don't even, you don't even live here. And, and of course it turns out he does. So that was news to her and it was news to me. So we welcome to the KTSA Kinetico Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line, Corey DeAngelis from the American Federation for Children uh, and a self-described school choice evangelist. And, Corey, it's good to have you on the show, and I'm, I'm even happier to know that you're, you're right here. Yeah, hey, thank you so much for having me, Jack. I actually grew up in San Antonio, Texas, went to public schools here all through K-12. through I have two degrees from the University of Texas, San Antonio, and have a yeah. lot of friends and family here. I just yeah. took a break, uh, you know, working out in, in D.C. for a handful of years, and now I'm finally out of the swamp and back in uh, the land of the free. You carpetbagger, you. All right. So <laughs> um, what is um, – I, I read somewhere, and I, I, may have, I may be off a little on the numbers, but I read somewhere that Stanford had done a study that found that public school enrollment over the last couple of years – went down by something like a million and a half students. Yeah. But the corresponding increase in private school and homeschooling doesn't account for all of that, meaning that we just lost some of these kids? Or what, what, what do you think happened there? That's right, yeah. We, we can't account for all of the switches um, in, in the past couple of years. Uh, so some students might have gotten lost in the cracks. Uh, charter school enrollment, which are still defined as public schools in Texas, actually seen, have seen an, a 7% increase nationwide in charter school enrollment and homeschooling, according to Census Bureau data, uh, essentially doubled relative to pre-pandemic levels. So families are voting with their feet already. And... Uh, you know, school choice initiatives have really just been uh, blossoming all across the country right now as, as well. We, we saw 2021 being the year of school choice, 2022 Arizona going all in, allowing every single family to choose the education provider that works best for their, for their kids, whether that's public, private, charter, or home-based education. And in 2023, we're seeing uh, the biggest victories we've seen in U.S. history in one year. We saw Iowa and Utah already go all in like Arizona did. West Virginia did so a couple of years ago. And it looks like Texas will finally be able Mm -hmm. to join, uh, be a national leader on school choice as well, with Governor Abbott really leaning into school choice for all families, regardless of income and background and zip code. Looks like Arkansas is doing some pretty... uh pretty good things with this too just to define the term because obviously there's all kinds of choices i mean in in some school districts you can move your kid around to different elementary schools or 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 to magnet school but when we talk about school choice in this discussion what we mean is the funds go with the student not with the school system right that's right it's the idea of the money following the child to whatever education provider works best for them that could be the public school if you like your public school you can keep your public school uh, but for real this time, and like with your doctor. But if not, you can take the state funding, uh, about seven to $10,000 per student, depending on the proposal in the state, and you can take that to a private school, a charter school, or a home-based education option, including micro schools. It's the money following the child. Look, 
Uh, education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether, whether that's public or private. So it's funding the student, not the building. Now, it seemed to me, but maybe I'm oversimplifying it, that the greatest factor or the greatest change in this debate happened with distance learning because parents suddenly saw into the curriculum. I mean, is that the biggest? Is that the only? Are there other things that are driving? Because you basically said starting in about 2020, we saw a seismic shift, right? Yes, we're seeing a universal school choice revolution that has ignited right before our eyes, and it's the teachers' union's own fault for overplaying their hand. And in the system, uh, but then also parents got to see what was going on in the classroom, and, and mm-hmm. Bodie Bauckham said it best, that we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come as Romans. Uh, well, the good news is parents aren't surprised anymore. They started to see a, another dimension of school quality that's more important than standardized test scores, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with their values, and you know, families who thought that they had their kids in good public schools, maybe it was an A-rated school by the state, maybe the kids were getting good grades on their report cards, started to see that this other factor, you know, whether your child is being raised in a way that aligns with your values is, is much more important than math or reading test scores, uh, which are important as well. But these families have started to push back at school board meetings, but they've also pushed back at the ballot box too. And, and politicians are starting to realize that, there's a new union that is that has popped up, the, a union representing the kids, and they're called parents, and mm. they care about their kids more than anybody else. Oh, but those parents, Corey, you know, they don't have master's degrees, and they oh. haven't been to schools of education. They don't, you know, what do they have? Um, you know, one of the one of the, one of the interesting choices I think you have. My, my my daughter's just about done with school, but if I was just starting out with her today, I think one of the interesting choices you would have would be. Do I am I am I going to be one of those people that shows up at the school board meeting and holds their feet to the fire and and you know make sure they're not teaching um, drag queen story hour or am I going to say hey what's most important is what happens to my kid I, I give up on these schools we're we're going to pull her out and put her in a private school or we're going to homeschool her do you do you feel there is still a place for the former? Mm-hmm. Or, or do people need to put their energies into getting their kids out of the system? I think we do both. And the, the, the reality is once you have the ability of, of voting with your feet, that's a form of bottom-up accountability that you can bring to the school board meeting and say, you know what? Now it's instead of them labeling you as a domestic terrorist for pushing back, like we saw with the National School Boards Association, labeling parents as domestic terrorists for pushing back at school board meetings, now when you go to the school board meeting, you actually have a little power behind you, and they'll have an incentive to listen to you because you could walk. And so you don't even have to exercise the exit option to change things in the system. So I say we do both, that these aren't mutually exclusive um, policy proposals. We should push back at school board meetings, and we should push back at the ballot box too and also fight for school choice at the Capitol. And I think Texas is going to finally be able to get it done this year, Abbott leading on the issue and uh, seeing proposals floating around for universal school choice. Abbott also made universal school choice for all families the gold standard of what we've been pushing for decades, an emergency item this session. And the Texas GOP made it a top eight legislative priority. It was also on the Republican Party uh, 
primary plat- uh, the Republican primaries in March of 2022 in Texas, finding 88% of Republican primary voters in, in Texas supporting uh, school choice on the ballot, which jumped nine percentage points since they last put it on the ballot that I saw in 2018. So times have changed, and I think it's it's you hit the nail on the head earlier that that families want to be able to raise the kids, their kids in ways that align with their values. The kids don't belong to the government. They belong to parents and parents are in the position to make the best decision for their own children. And they know more about their kids than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. When you envision state after state doing this, do you envision public schools responding in a market-based way, in other words, saying, wow, we, we, we didn't read the room, we've got to start being what people need us to be, or does this kill them because they'll go down with the ship, the, the woke, you know, libs of TikTok ship? No, parents want education, not indoctrination, and so when schools have incentive to cater to their needs, they'll start to focus on education more, and we have 29 studies on this topic. It's one of the the clearest streams of evidence in the school choice debate. Whether you're a supporter or against, I think it's hard to refute this evidence that 26 of the 29 uh, existing uh, studies on the topic find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in the public schools too. So school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. Public schools can and do up their game in response to competition. So no one in the school choice fight wants to destroy public schools. We want to make them better, and this is one way to do that by giving true bottom-up accountability for the system to finally focus on the needs of families and children as opposed yeah. to the other way around. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating uh, subject, and it's 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 all happening very, very quickly, but I know people like you have been working on it for a long time. And, Corey, I hope we'll uh, have a chance to have you back again and talk some more about this, especially as the legislative session goes forward. But it was great to get you on, great to know you're back in Texas, and you're welcome on the show anytime. We would love to have you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jack. All right. Thank you, Corey DeAngelis, who's a school choice evangelist and senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. Uh, yeah, we can talk about this. Um, I mean, do you go to the school board meeting and you rail against the woke curriculum, or do you look at that and say, you know what, my job here is this kid and getting him or her to a good place, so I'm not going to waste my time trying to fix this thing. I'm not going to be one man against the system. I'm just going to homeschool or private school and and if if we get to the point where the dollars are in your hands um he's saying well you'll have power in both places you know you'll have private and public entities trying to woo you please you uh do you believe that yeah i remember when distance learning started um and i was talking to people i knew who were teachers i have teachers in my family i have some friends who are teachers and um they all said the same thing, uh, more or less. The numbers were varied, but the, all of them said uh, almost immediately uh, somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of the kids just didn't show up on, on the, you know, on the Zoom or whatever you call it, Google Classroom, whatever it was. So right off the bat, somewhere between a quarter and a third of students didn't participate, didn't log on, weren't completing assignments, maybe showed up a little at the beginning and then dropped off. Some never showed up. And now, having gone a considerable amount of time without school, perhaps some of those kids or their families have decided, 
uh, it wasn't that important and there's no need to resume it. That's why the numbers don't line up. The number of students that public schools, K through 12 public schools are down does not equal the number of new students in private schools and homeschooling. And I find it puzzling that politicians aren't declaring this a crisis or an emergency. We, we go into, um, alert mode if one child is missing. We spread their picture all over the media, which is good. We should do that. Children are valuable and we love them. But why aren't they curious about where all of these kids went in the transition to distance learning, which was a disaster, of course? Why are they not wondering, demanding to know, urgently trying to find out where these kids are? And then when you think about all the attention that's being paid right now to child trafficking, there was a story over the weekend they did a massive multi-level, you know, federal, state, local task force, uh, sting operation. It went on for several weeks and they made, uh, 60 arrests in the DFW area. And they rescued 28 children who were in various stages of being trafficked for sex. It had already happened or it was about to happen. But what, when you, when you see that, if kids, dropped out of school, wouldn't that be fodder for the traffickers? I mean, you know, if if school is nothing else, it's a place you know your kid is at from this time to that time. So I find it fascinating that we are attacking parents, we're calling them domestic terrorists, we're smearing people who are homeschooling or withdrawing their kids to go to private school, but these so-called, um, you know, education professionals have no curiosity, have made no effort, as far as I know, not that I've ever heard, to figure out, well, where did all the kids go who dropped out? And, and I mean, it, it does raise that other question we were talking about with, with Corey. If you, if you reach the point of frustration or disgust, with what's going on at your local school or school district, is it better to fight and try to change it? But in the meantime, of course, that takes time, and your kid is still subjected to whatever it is you object to. Or do you say, you know what, we're, we're, we're pulling the cord, we're out of here. And I think it's going to be more the latter. And if they make it so that the funds follow the student instead of attached to the district, which is how it's spoken of now. They they really are big about attendance because that's a funding thing. But if the funds go with the student, will it make sense to go to the school board meeting or will it make sense to say, you know, we're, we're going to sit down tonight at the table and figure out a new plan for K-12? through You know what is a really weird image in the news right now, Christian, are these politicians that are going to East Palestine and drinking the water. <laughs> right. It makes me curious first, as to what the news is going to be tomorrow. <laughs> first of all, yeah, really. Because we've been wondering what's in the water they drink for a long time. But mm-hmm. um, I, I, I have to question, being a cynic, is that really even Palestine water? I mean, they say it is, but it, it, it's not like we saw them go outside and dip it into a puddle, right? Right. Yeah. That and then could... secondly, 
the look on their faces, it's kind of like they're toasting mm-hmm. in hell. What's funny is you have such a, I mean, it seems like you have a shift between what local officials and politicians are saying versus the mm-hmm. state and the national right. ones. Right. You know? Right. So not a big shocker, but yeah, I mean, was DeWine drinking out of a tap or was it Aquafina? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, like, I heard one of the residents in the town say on one of the stations, he said, well, that's great that they're taking a sip, but we're living with it every Mm -hmm. day, day after day, week after week, month after month. That's very different from coming to town and taking a sip. So, Yeah, I don't want to get too into the weeds because I'm not an expert at this, but when I consider how much dirt they've excavated, which is like more than seven tons, and they're talking about over a million gallons. Like the average backyard swimming pool is like thirty to 40,000 gallons. Mm -hmm. They've collected a million five gallons. Mm. (laughs) A lot lot of water. Whose swimming pools are they putting it into? (laughs) Um, All right, so we're going to look at that. but I want to I want to play this for you now because uh, and and see what you think. And phone lines are open at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. This one is interesting to me because it involves a radio show and a guy apologizing uh, for what he said. So the the radio station is in Boston. It's a sports talk radio station, and they have these two guys on Tony Maserati and Michael Felger co-hosting a show together, and on Friday. Uh, one of the hosts, Felger, was in New Orleans doing his half of the show from there while Tony Maserati was was in Boston. And they were on a video hookup so they could see each other. And um, Tony Maserati, trying to be funny, made a reference to these two black guys who were sitting behind Michael Felger where he was sitting doing the show so they're they're bannering back and forth and and to a radio listener this might have been lost because they can't see it but if you saw the video this is what he says on friday cut number three yeah i want to know now who the two guys behind you are that's what i look okay. because if i were you i'll be off in two minutes i'm just doing i got just if, if i'm too loud just let me know honestly <laughs> no, they can't two more minutes they can't hear us right no, not you. Okay, no, so I would be careful if I were you, because the last time you were on a couple of guys like that, they stole your car. There's <laughs> Chris in Boston. Go ahead, Chris. Okay, so I guess one time Felger left his keys in a car, and a car got stolen. So this is his, he tells this as a joke or says this as a joke. This was on Friday. Fast forward to yesterday, and he's apologizing uh, for what he said. Uh, this is Tony Maserati's apology on the air yesterday, cut number four. We have to clean up something from Friday. We had a bad moment on Friday afternoon, and so we just want to clean up that little bit of business. And so, Maz, the floor is yours. Okay, so as you said, late <clears throat> late in the show on Friday, I made some comments that angered and upset some people, and rightfully so. So uh, I wish I could take them back. I can't. They were... Uh, insensitive, they were hurtful, and frankly, they hurt the cause for those of us who believe in racial and social equality and all of those things. And I do. I'm on that side of the line, which is what made this thing so difficult in so many different ways. So I owe everyone an apology. It's not who I am. It's not who we are. I can tell you that until I'm blue in the face. Those of you who know me will believe it. 
those of you who don't, won't, and you probably shouldn't. If I saw and heard what you did, uh, I feel the same way. And you have a right to be upset. The, the only thing I can really do is apologize for it. Um, again, you know, there is, when we're talking about these sorts of issues, there is a line somewhere, and I can assure you I stand on the right side of it. But you, again, that doesn't excuse what I said or did on Friday. It was really, okay, all uh, right. I meant. I, 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 I got to tell you, I've listened to this now several times. It, it's very uncomfortable. It's very hard to listen to. Um, I don't know him personally. I know people who know him and have worked with him. They love him. They say he's a great guy, great coworker, good person. I don't think he has anything to apologize for. I wouldn't have said what he said, but I know why he said what he said. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why he said it. But I, I just, this to me is what we've come to in the year 2023. He is begging. For his life. You can hear it in his voice. This sounds like a man with a gun to his head. And maybe in a career sense it is. Should, should he be in trouble for what he said? He made a joke about the two guys that he saw behind his buddy. And he said, hey, they look like, like uh, guys you were around last time you were around. Guys like that, you had your car stolen. Is have have young black men never stolen a car? Have young white men never stolen a car? Has that never happened before? I mean, is it a smart thing to say? No. Is it the worst thing I've ever heard? No. Now, let me tell you why he said it. Because I can relate to this a little bit. See, it's very easy when you, say, write a column or you read a newscast you have something that's scripted. You can refine and hone. You can go over your words. You can clean up your words, your usage. You can look at what you've created before you put it on the air and say, wait a minute, this isn't going the way I wanted it to. But when you do what I do or what they do, and I don't know how long their show is, but like this show's three hours, okay? And when you take out everything else, this is like an hour and a half to an hour and three quarters of me just talking. You have any idea how many times a day, every single day, I say stuff that as soon as I say it, it didn't land right, it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. I wish I'd said it differently, or I wish I, hadn't, I wish I hadn't said it at all. I mean, that's just the nature of this. You're talking extemporaneously for long periods of time, and. I, I gather this was toward the end of their show. You get a little punchy. You get a little whatever. You're trying too hard to be funny. I'm guilty of that all the time. I know I'm not that funny. I know sometimes I try too hard. I know sometimes I say stuff that could have been better. But that's what happened here. You know, it's a different story if you're intentionally writing, creating, choosing your words, weighing them, editing them. But I think we got to understand that in an ad-lib, extemporaneous world, not everything lands the way you want it to. Not everything comes out the way you meant it to. And again, if there was some pattern of this guy sing, sing, you know, singling out black people or any, any group, that would be different. There's no pattern that I know of. And to hear somebody pleading, for, please forgive me, 
And he says, um, I owe you an apology. I don't think he does. So yesterday on the number one rated sports talk show in Boston, the host, the co-host, was apologizing for what he had said on Friday. Take a listen. I owe everyone an apology. It's not who I am. It's not who we are. I can tell you that until I'm blue in the face. Those of you who know me will believe it. Those of you who don't, won't, and you probably shouldn't. If I saw and heard what you did, uh, I'd feel the same way. And And here's what he said. Let me play what he said on Friday that he's referring to. Cut number three. Yeah, I want to know now who the two guys behind you are. That's what I want. Okay. Because if I were you... I'll be off in two minutes. I'm just doing... I got just... If if I'm too loud, just let me know. Honestly. (laughs) They can't... Two more minutes. They can't hear us, right? No, not you. Okay, no. So I would be careful if I were you because the last time you were on a couple of guys like that, they stole your car. (laughs) Here's Chris in Boston. Go ahead, Chris. Okay. Um... I, it's just, uh, what do you think? Did he need to apologize this abjectly? 210-599-5555. Robert is on KTSA. Robert, good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Jack. Uh, great show. Uh, he doesn't need to apologize. Basically, he was crying on the on the, the crying on the apology. I, I don't think he needs to do that. What about if it would have been uh, a different uh, a different color? making that same joke um, about black people. I mean, it's just a joke. It's not. I, I, I may have missed something, but I don't think he refers to them by race. He just says those two guys look like, you know. I mean, could, could you not say, like you're saying, could that not uh, be said of anybody? I mean... If, if, uh, if he had, you know, if he had, if he had made a racial remark, that might be different, but I... I I think people are are putting that on to what he said. Yes, you're right. They surmised. They uh, they, uh, they. If you want to say somebody looks a little sketchy, that that comes in all colors, you know. Yes, I agree with that. I yeah, they. But it's the people there. It's a relative. This it's relative. But they took it. They took it. Um, you got to be careful what you say. That's the only thing I got to say. Now everybody's. Um, Everybody's real sensitive. Everybody, I, yeah. I don't know what. Uh, I really I, don't know, Jack. I mean, it, I hear. No, I hear. I hear your. I hear your frustration with it because you just said something very telling, Robert. And thank you for your call, Robert. Just said you got to be careful what you say. Can I just tell you? And I'm not. I'm not making any excuses. I'm not asking for sympathy. Um, you, I can't be careful what I say. It's an hour and three quarters every day without any script. No writers, no editors. You wouldn't want me to be careful <laughs> with what I say. There's no way to do this. You know, when I write my column, I edit it fanatically. I go over and over and over because that's the way I am. I'm kind of OCD about that stuff. And I like the control I have over it and the, and the refining of it. But the radio show is the total opposite of that. And you wouldn't want it any other way. If I was being careful... With what I said, you'd be bored. The truth is even stronger than that. Because not only in order to do an ad-lib show do you have to not be careful what you say, but I promise you they have at that station what we've had at this station and every place I've ever worked in talk radio. You have people in your face telling you all the time, stir it up, wake them up, be more edgy. 
Take it to the limit. That's the business model for talk radio. They're not telling you, hey, uh, well, you better watch what you're saying. Never had a boss say that. Never had a program director say that. So, I, I, I again, you hear him say it, and I, I'm sure being a decent person, you think, I, I, I wouldn't have said that, or I, I wish he hadn't said that. And I could believe that he wishes he hadn't said it, but that's not the point. The point is, does it merit this kind of, please don't, you know, eat me alive, please don't sacrifice me on the altar, kind of, I just don't think it does. And I hate that we have gotten to the point where um, this is sort of a new blood sport, you know, and people are now watching and waiting to see if he'll keep his job. Should he lose his job over this? 210-599-5555. It's, you know, it's not perfect. I'm not saying it's great. It's great radio. But I I get the moment they were in and how they got into that that situation. John is on the radio. John, good afternoon. Hey, Jack. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Say, I've been listening to this last segment here, and I understand where your uh, your point of view of uh, uh, the radio host, if you get his name, of not uh, needing to apologize or definitely not needing to lose his job over it. But just to uh, look at it from a different lens, I am a, I am a person or a man of color, and so uh, it was almost in a sense of, and I don't want to go into the weeds of it, but almost in a sense of uh, profiling a little bit. It'd be no different if two black men sitting on the corner and the police pulls them over because they're in a neighborhood uh, that they are not typically in, and he, the cop, asks them what they're doing there. So uh, just the sense of uh, the optics does not look good, and I think that's why you find your your uh, the fellow uh, commentator or host uh, apologizing the way he is. John, do you no, think optics, that it's the, the same? I want to I want to ask you about the analogy you made, though. If yeah. if police detain you because you're black versus a guy on the radio making an observation that you didn't even hear how can you compare those two things that one is the power of the state and the other one is just a guy expressing his opinion right and again i i i i'm i'm thick i'm a thick-skinned person i just listen to it and you know just take it for what it is but you're there are others out there that may see it as a sense of profiling i didn't say the cops detain the two black officers in this analogy i'm just saying they get pulled over simply because well walking while black i'm sure you've heard that term and i'm sure yourself being in the public uh, public sector sometimes just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should and uh he he went out on a limb he he said maybe an off-color joke to some might find it and um he's uh somewhat yeah. paying that price for that i case. mean i understand i understand where you're coming from i i get the profiling piece of it i i, I would hope i would never say anything like that um but I, I i still am not i mean if police stop you that is a kind of detention okay you can't leave you're not you're not free to walk away right so Correct. that is a that's a much more serious. I I mean I have I have no gray area with that. If the police are stopping two guys because they're black, that is wrong. Period. Full stop. That is so different in my mind. I, I can't I can't get over the comparison to somebody making a joke on the radio that hey these two guys look sketchy. He didn't reference their race. It, 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 you would agree with me, I think, John, that. 
people of all races could look sketchy to me or to you. That's a very subjective thing, not an objective thing, right? And and when you Absolutely. cross the street because you don't like the look of somebody, you're not being a racist. You're just going with your gut, right? Well, in the, in the initial segment that you played, uh, the initial commentary, I thought, to be honest with you, at least what I heard, I thought he did reference uh, their race when he was talking to his partner on the other end. I did. He, no, I, thought I mean, he, did reference he says, them. I want to know who the two guys behind you are. Oh, That's okay. what I want to know. Okay. He doesn't see, reference see their race. But but see, okay. I, I guess if I hadn't told you their race, would would you have made this call? Uh, probably so, because it's still a form of profiling, whether the guys were white, Asian, Hispanic, or what have you. Well, if they and, were and white, how would you be comparing? Okay, but now I'm even more confused. So if they were white, how would you be comparing it to driving while black? I, now I really don't get that comparison, John. Okay, you, you got me there. Obviously, they'd have to be a person of color. I mean, I, I myself, I've heard it all in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm sure I'll hear more of it. But I, I sure thought I heard that segment that you played of him. He did reference a, a skin tone. Yeah, so um, maybe I'm wrong, Don. Can we? Do you have it again? Let's let me go back to it. This is uh, cut number three, Don. Play it again. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Yeah, I want to know now who the two guys behind you. That's what I want. Okay. Because <laughs> if I were you, I'll be off in two minutes. I'm just doing. I got just. If, if I'm too loud, just let me know. Honestly, <laughs> no, they can't. Two more minutes. They can't hear us, right? No, not you. Okay, no. So I would be careful if I were you, because the last time you were on, a couple of guys like that, they stole your car. That's <laughs> Chris in Boston. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I don't know. I John, don't, I, I don't mean I, any disrespect because I, I do know that I, I, I believe you I when you say that you've been. I, I believe you when you say that you have been profiled and I know it happens I'm, I, and I'm against it. But I just don't. In, in this instance, I feel like we're projecting onto this moment maybe more than was going on or, or at least that we have evidence was going on like i don't know i mean maybe he is a racist but he didn't give us any no. evidence of that and what he said and i and I'm, I'm definitely not saying that i don't know that guy from the man in the moon i'm just saying in a hypersensitive state of where our culture yeah. is today you, you just got to know your audience uh, and i'm sure yeah. you've heard that cliche you know your audience and who you're talking to they're on the way airway airway right. talking to many millions of people so, right, right. Was your apology, um, I mean, not your, sorry, was his apology um, satisfying to you or adequate in your opinion? I thought his apology was heartfelt. You can, you, and just as you said, you can hear it in his voice. You can, you can sense the sincere because I, I definitely heard some half-ass apologies given to me. So, but you can, yeah. you can hear the sincerity yeah. in his voice. Yeah. Okay. Well, John, I'm glad you called. I appreciate it. Um, I, I'm going to be, Fair to our last caller, John, and I, 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 this occurred to me during the break after we hung up, but I think the reason he thought that, uh, Tony Maserati said black was because I described the whole scenario to you setting up the call, but he does not say it. So his listeners do not hear him use that word. I used it so you'd have the full picture, the full context of what we were talking about. 210-599-5555. Jessica's on KTSA. Jessica, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. So I have two takes on this. First okay. is when I'm a white female. So when I think of like two guys behind you stealing your car, I immediately think of two big, large, like white bouncers in a bar. I don't think like color or race or whatever other than white. I mean, I just think big, angry looking people. So 
second take is something that you said yesterday with Bernie Sanders. If, you know, we're not supposed to look at older people and judge them for being intelligent or not intelligent if we can't take a test, why can't I look at somebody else? And now we're being asked to look at somebody, to not look at somebody and judge them. I don't know if that made sense at all, but like. Well, I guess when I heard it, my thought was, are we not allowed to joke about black guys? I mean, is that is that what we're saying? Because it seems to me you could make this joke, as you said, it, it could have been about any two people, and yeah. it, it 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 somehow seems like it landed differently because they were black. Now, if you're if we're going to say that, let's just say that. Hey, if you're white, you're not allowed to make jokes. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it was just a general comment against car thieves. Period. Done. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's and it's two guys, you know. At the end of a show, they're they're punchy, they're yeah. goofy. It's ad lib. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Jessica, thanks for the call. I was impressed yeah. by this. Thank I thought this was interesting. The actor Idris Elba, who's one of my favorite actors, um, did an interview recently that made a lot of waves in the UK. It was with Esquire, and he said, and if you don't know, Idris Elba is a an African, uh, you know, of African or I was going to say African American, but he's British, so. I guess you would say he's Afro-British. Anyway, he um, he says he no longer refers to himself as a black actor, and he w- would prefer that no one else does. And he says it's because it puts him in a box. He says, as humans, we're obsessed with race, and this hinders people's aspirations and growth. So he 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 acknowledges racism is real, he talks about being, uh, you know, experiencing it. He's not, he's not living in a fantasy world. But his argument, I think, is that our fixation on race, which we think of as progress and progressive, is actually limiting and regressive. It is creating needless divides, disputes, discomforts, like the one we're talking about. Now, again, if somebody says something overtly racist, that's a, then this is a different conversation. And, and I'm not even here to defend what he said in the sense that, like, I'm proud of it or he should get an award. or I, it, it's, a, it's a really dumb thing to say. But dumb is a far cry from begging for your life, begging for your career. Um, now... You can say of Idris Elba, well, it's easy for him to say, I don't see myself as a black actor because he's got wealth and he's got privilege and the police probably won't treat him the same way they would treat some black guy that isn't famous. And, and, and that's fair, but, but if he can't say this, if he's not allowed to say this about himself, he's only saying it about himself, then who is? I mean... All he's saying is, don't limit me. Don't just think of me as a black actor. I don't want to be put in that box. And maybe we need to expand that out a little bit and say, are we, are we taking every interaction between people and judging them or filtering them by the race of the two people? Is that, is that the world we want to live in? Is that, was that our goal in the first place? Was that what Martin Luther King talked about? I mean, is that, is that progress? That doesn't seem like it. When you think of it that way, that, that, that feels like a world we'd want to progress away from, not toward. 210-599-5555. So 
The other thing I'll again say is I think there's a, a certain amount of the ad lib factor here. Like, again, I don't know Tony Maserati, but people I know who know him uh, say he's a very good person, very nice guy, great to work with. Um, his voice sounds the way it does because he's actually very ill. Um, and I don't know what the illness is, but he's, he's, he's got some kind of condition. So having said all that, I just, to me, this is like a, a moment that didn't land very well and it's turned into something that is sadly very predictable, but is it really what we want? Charles is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Charles, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. I agree with you wholeheartedly. We've come to a place where nothing is right, where you can't say anything anymore, but I agree with you totally. I don't know this gentleman. Is he African-American, Maserati? I don't I don't know nothing about him. I, I'm ignorant. No, he's a white guy. Okay. Let me just say this. I'm Mexican, okay, but I'm also 5% black. I did the 23andMe thing and what have not. And let me just say this. I don't take offense to anybody. Somebody calls me Mexican. Somebody calls me anything. I don't care. I mean, it, it, to me, it's your butt hurt. You know, get over it, you know. I've, I've had people tell me things. I told them, well, I don't care. They've called me a wetback. I don't care. You know what I'm saying? I know I'm not. I know what I'm not. But, you know, people are just looking for things, and I'm – I'm afraid that the African-American culture has come to a point where they, like you said, they can't joke around and you pray for, where's Richard Pryor? Where's, well, I mean, hold, where's hold on a second, Charles, because I, 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 I do want to disagree with you on what you just said. I don't think this is the African-American culture. I think this is the culture. I don't, know of, I don't know of anything these two guys that he mentioned have said or if they even know he said this. They were, they were in New Orleans. They couldn't even hear him. So well, this is people this is people in general trying to create an ever changing set of rules that are almost impossible to abide by and I'm asking do we even want to try to abide by them but I, I yeah. you know I don't think this is African Americans are demanding he be fired I think this is the cancel culture at large but you were right the poor man it looks like he's got a gun to his uh, sounds like he might be ill but it sounds like somebody's threatened his job and that should not yeah. be I mean, if you make a mistake, please accept the apology. Yeah, let the man move yeah. on. Don't rule people's careers. John, yeah. you do a good job. Thank you for your Th- time. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Charles. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I will say this, too, and, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with him. I mean, this, this, this idea that uh, justice is achieved or progress is achieved when people get fired is a, is a bizarre concept. I mean, say that out loud to yourself. And, and tell me that, that that feels right to you. Like, yeah, that's how we make the world a better place. Just, everybody that I disagree with needs to be fired. Okay. But, but e- e- even, even, I want to come back to what Charles said, because people slip into this very easily. I'm not going to let anyone say black people won't let you tell jokes. <laughs> that is not true. Okay. I, I don't know of any, uh, any race, any ethnic, any ethnicity, any subset of the population that is completely without a sense of humor, okay? Why are some of our funniest and most popular comedians black, okay? So I, I, am, I am pretty sure when you see something like this, to the extent that there's outrage and pressure, it's not just coming from one, group, one race or one group. It, it's this sort of the way we make progress is weeding out the people that have misstepped. And that's not true. The way we make progress is by forgiving 
The way we make progress is by learning. And we should want to live in a world where the races are comfortable with each other. Have you noticed how many people have made it their business to keep us on edge? Do you ever wonder why? Does that seem like a good, is that so obviously good that you don't question it? Because I do. It's like a constant stirring or agitating or keep, you know, and, and, and it's their business. It's their job. They call it anti-racism, which is, of course, the opposite of what it really is. Wouldn't progress, wouldn't the sort of utopia we're supposed to be working toward or, or praying for, wouldn't it be a place where people were very comfortable across racial lines? Does it seem like we're going that way? If I ever get fired, it'll probably be for something like this because it won't be something where you thought about what you were going to say and you were uh, working it through. It, it, it will be a, oh, I'd like to pull that one back kind of moment. And I've had tons of them. I've had plenty of them. And, and, I, and anyone in this business, I don't care who he is or how long he's been on the radio, who tells you that they've never had that, you're having that every day. And if you're being careful, quote-unquote, it's not going to work. This is a high-wire act, okay? This is the opposite of scripted newscasts and scripted shows and disc jockeys talking for 13 seconds before a record. This is, this is the high-wire act, and sometimes you put a foot wrong. Uh, writer named Phil Magnus in the Wall Street Journal did a piece about the 1619 Project. You know, it's now a Hulu series. And he made a really good point, and it reminded me of something that uh, our caller uh, John uh, mentioned about the the police stop uh, stopping people for being black. He pointed out that um, the headline on the piece is the 1619 Project vindicates capitalism, and what he points out is that the economic inequalities between blacks and whites that's depicted in the 1619 Project is almost entirely the result of government policies that, in purpose or effect, discriminated against African Americans. It makes the case for capitalism. It, it makes the case that people treat each other better than the government treats groups of people or races of people. And he's right. We, we know our history enough to know that the Jim Crow laws were laws. They led to social behaviors, but before anything, they were laws. The government uh, sanctioned or outright ordered separate and unequal treatment of races. We know this. And even so-called icons of the Democratic left, like FDR, made very cynical, calculating decisions uh, in his legislative agenda and his policies because he was dependent on the democratic machines of the Jim Crow South. The New Deal was much better for white people than it was for black people. That's historical fact. So his point is, if you want equal 
opportunity, if you want fairness, if you want harmony, uh, you want less government, not more. Capitalism has been better for race relations than, than any government program or any politician's ever been. So President Biden went to Ukraine and didn't go to East Palestine, Ohio. The mayor of that town, a man named Trent Conaway, said this when he found out. Cut number eight. That was the biggest slap in the face. That tells you right now he doesn't care about us. So uh, he can send every agency he wants to, but... Uh, I found that out this morning in one of the briefings that he was in the Ukraine giving millions of dollars away to people over there and not to us, and I'm furious. Yeah, President's Day in our country, he's he's uh, over in Ukraine, so that tells you what kind of guy he is. You know, we, we all know that presidential trips are symbolic, and obviously the physical location of the president, whoever he is, is not necessarily uh, indicative of priorities or where the money's going. But but uh, d- does this man have a point that he's not here, he's there. He's pledging money there. He's telling those people, we will stand with you always. We will never, you can have anything and everything you need and we will never stop supporting you. Would those not be good words to hear if you lived in a town where the water had rainbows in it and you had a rash and your kids have had a headache for the last two weeks. Seems like it would, right? Seems like that'd be a pretty, pretty decent thing to do. Not that we'd hang a medal around his neck, but that'd be a pretty decent presidential thing to do. What do you think? 210-599-5555. Um, and, and, and I'm not only interested in it from the standpoint of, of uh, he didn't go to... Palestine and Pete Buttigieg didn't go because again, I, I've I've never lived in a place that had a natural disaster, but I, I I can't imagine it would be that comforting to have VIPs showing up. However, however, since that is the metric by which we show we care, what is Joe Biden showing us here? How do you feel about the the words he's saying in Poland? He's telling Ukraine, um, whatever you need, for however long you need it. Those are some big words. I mean, not too many years ago, Ukraine was considered one of the most failed and unreliable governments in 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 Europe. I mean, it was it was notorious for corruption, and in particular. A, the particular brand of corruption for which it was notorious was the misuse and uh, theft of international aid. I mean, this goes back to the Chernobyl era. And, and, and so I, I, I understand that they're fighting the good fight and, and we're rooting for them against Russia, and I am. Because, you know, the minute you start saying anything, oh, you're a, you're a Putin apologist, but I, I do think that we've totally abandoned any pretense of like accountability or caring about where is this going. Like in, in actual fact, although the words sound great, we're not we're not going to be there with them forever, or we're not going to back them to the hilt. There is some limit. I don't know what it will be and when it will be, but there is one. So, sort of childish to pretend otherwise. You know, 
you, you, you pledge a level of support to a country that's under attack, that is commensurate with your goals and your values as a country, but you don't write them a love letter. You don't tell them, I'm never going to stop loving you, and I will love you for all time. And, you know, that, that's, that's what our foreign policy has become. It's become kind of a feely, feel-good, hallmark card, you know, declaration of, of, of never-ending love. Now, they asked Ron DeSantis, you know, worse than Hitler. He's worse than Hitler 2023 edition. We'll see who's next. Uh, he was on Fox and Friends. They asked him about Ukraine. Now, bear in mind that he's not only the governor of Florida and a potential 2024 presidential uh, candidate, uh, but Ron DeSantis has some chops in this uh, thing, too. He's a retired Navy officer. He deployed to Iraq. Um, he was known as kind of a hawk when he was in Congress before he became the governor. Listen to this exchange uh, with DeSantis on Fox. Cut number five. Well, they have effectively a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. And um, these things can can escalate. And I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective that they're trying to to achieve. Uh, but just saying it's an open ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. So, Governor, what does a win look like for us in Ukraine for Ukraine? Well, I think it's important to point out, I mean, you know, the fear of kind of Russia going into NATO countries and all that and steamrolling, you know, that has not even come close to happening. I think they've shown themselves to be a third-rate military power. Uh, I think they've suffered tremendous, tremendous losses. Uh, I got to think that the people in Russia uh, are probably disapproving of what's going on. I don't think they can speak up about it for obvious reasons. So I think Russia has been really, really wounded here, um, and I don't think that they are the same threat to our country, even though they're hostile. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're on the same level as a China. I mean, that makes that makes some sense to me. Um, and it certainly makes a lot more sense than, um, you know, Biden standing up there like he's Whitney Houston and I will love you <laughs> for all time. His arms out, you know. 210-599-5555. Uh, we talked about uh, the British publisher of Roald Dahl, the, the legendary uh, British author, who, uh, by the way, I had it wrong. I said he died in 1980. He died in 1990. So, sorry, I took a few years away, Roald. But anyway, uh, his publisher has announced this week that they're uh, going through all of his books and removing all objectionable words, adjectives. They're uh, changing the genders of characters they're making villains less villainous if they're women uh they're not letting uh words like father and mother be used being replaced with parent and so forth and so on um not only is that kind of stuff insipid in its own right but how is that any different from burning books if you if you take an author's work and you um change what's in between the covers but you leave his name on the cover that's like burning the pages and then putting the book itself back on the shelf. How, how is it? Tell me how that's any different. Cause the left loves to talk about book burning when really all they mean is disputes over whether a book should be in the curriculum. That is not book burning. And you do have to make very 
precise and discriminatory choices about what goes into a curriculum, but to, to change every copy of a book from now on by 2023 standards and not even universal standards and not allow people to read what he wrote and understand it in the time in which he wrote it is sick. I mean, it really is. It's book burning. Tell me it's not. 210-599-5555. Oh, and you got to hear this. Remember George Santos, the uh, lying uh, Long Island uh, Republican uh, congressman? He, uh, over the course of his uh, campaign and after he was elected last November, he has been found to have lied about virtually every aspect of his resume and his biography. He did an unbelievable interview with, of all people, Piers Morgan. I mean, what was he thinking? And and, and listen to the, listen to Piers Morgan ask him about lying. Cut number seven. I was a Wall Street superstar. I was this. My family were this. For that, and it was all untrue. So I don't categorize these as mistakes. I think that part of your process, of, your cathartic process of redemption, if you like, it's got to start from... I've been a terrible liar. I mean, would you be prepared to say that? Sure. Like I well, said, man. well, I've been a terrible liar on, the, okay. on those subjects. And, and what, what I tried to sure. convey to the American people is I made mistakes of allowing oh. the pressures of what I thought needed to be done in order to... Dis- Listen to this. Listen to this. This wasn't about tricking anybody. This wasn't no. about... This, it's, it's, yes, he was. No, 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 no. Let, let, me let, let me finish. It wasn't about tricking the people. This was about getting accepted by the party here local. The Republican Party made me do it, says George Santos. By the way, the Republican Party richly deserves him. I'm, I'm enjoying the, the writhing and the denying and the we want him out of here. And that th- this is what you get. Whether you're the Republicans or the Democrats, this is what you get when you play the identity politics game. What he's really telling Piers Morgan, he just isn't bright enough to explain it, is he figured out, or somebody figured out for him, that plain old George Santos wasn't as um, politically marketable as gay, Jewish, you know, uh, survivor of this, victim of that, George Santos would be. So what he's telling us is politics rewards. I mean, we've always known that, that crime pays when it's politicians and lying pays when it's politicians. But what he's telling us is I, I studied the way we pick candidates. I've studied the way parties reach out to different kinds of voters, and I decided to make myself exactly what a part a political party would wish for if they could just build a candidate like Mr. Potato Head, where you just take the thing and stick on the pieces you want. And that's what he did. That his mom died of cancer as a result of being at the World Trade Center, that he was a big-time Wall Street operator, that he's Jewish, that he... Um, had friends and colleagues killed at the Pulse nightclub shooting, that he's Latino, and, and, and all of these things. And he's saying the party made me do it. Well, they didn't make him do it. But in, in truth, when you run for office, the more boxes you check, the better they like you. I, I, in that respect, 
George Santos has finally said something that's true. This was interesting to me. Um, a British medical journal had a story recently about a man here in the States who was treated for prostate cancer. And then for the final 20 years of his life, he's now died, but for the final 20 years of his life, the man developed what is called FAS, foreign accent syndrome. After receiving the therapy, he had an uncontrollable Irish accent. He had lived in England as a younger man. He had some relatives in Ireland, but he had never actually been to Ireland, and he had never had a foreign accent. Once he had the the uh, prednisone therapy for the prostate cancer, his accent became uncontrollable in all of his speech and persistent, says the journal uh, that uh, wrote up this case. And this is a thing, foreign accent, uh, foreign accent syndrome, uh, is a thing that happens when people undergo traumatic uh, experiences, head injuries, uh, s- certain kinds of surgeries. They don't exactly know why. And again, it's often people with an accent that makes no sense, a Norwegian woman with a German accent, an Australian woman with an Irish uh, accent are some of the other recent examples. Uh, a woman in the UK who had never left her home village had a Jamaican-sounding voice after she suffered a stroke. I, I, I mean, it sounds like it could be scary and and uh, debilitating. I mean, imagine imagine you go to talk and you don't recognize your own voice. You don't recognize the way you sound. It might not matter so much to people you meet. They just figure you come from there. But imagine not recognizing your own voice. So then I started thinking about it another way, and, and I'm not making light of this gentleman, but if you could pick an accent, if you could pick any accent, and that would be you from now on, what would it be? I mean, it would just come effortlessly. You wouldn't have to try it or effort it. You just, I'm, I'm going to flip a switch, and your voice is now, any, it could be it could be a, an American regional accent, it could be a foreign accent. What would you pick? Got to admit, I do like the Irish accent. I've always liked the sound of that. In both men and women, I think that sounds really nice. It's very easy on the ears. It's very sexy with women. I think, my opinion. Um, I guess if I was going to pick one, I know I should be picking my own ethnicity, right? But I, I don't know. It's just that that I like that one. I think I would pick that one. 210-599-5555. If you could pick any accent, and it would be your your permanent speaking voice, uh, what would it be? Irish, British, British. And, of course, I know, don't, I realize that I'm simplifying because within every country, including ours, there are numerous variations and regional and, if you're from this part of England versus that part of England, or if you're Welsh, or if you're Scottish, or so I, I know there's all these different permutations. But and, and if you know the specific one, like oh, I'd really like to sound like I'm from Liverpool, or I'd really like to sound like I'm from uh, Munich, or whatever, that's fine. But if you just know the the name of the country or the part of the world, maybe you, 
Maybe you'd like it to be Italian or Spanish or what was the lady that was lady that had never left her village, had a stroke, and she had a Jamaican accent. So that would surprise a few people, right? 210-599-5555. Um, I have known people throughout my life that were very enamored of accents. Like they, they really got into it, and if they heard an accent that w- was um, not native, they would, uh, you know, ask the person. And they don't mean it in a in an insulting way. They're they're paying a compliment. They're they're saying, you know, t- tell me more. But I suppose some people don't want to be singled out for the way they talk. They, you know, they might feel like you were I don't know profiling them or something, right? Um, but to me, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to say it. I mean, I, I I like hearing the different accents. I think some of them sound better than others. I enjoy hearing them. I'm curious about where they come from. We should be able to talk about that, right? I mean, it, I think we had a story a while back where, where we asked the question, is it rude to ask somebody where they're from? Because some people think it is. That's like saying, well, you, you, you don't belong here. Or you're not from around here. But, I mean... I just think people, um, if we strip away the, the way we're trained to be offended at so many things, wouldn't you say that most people actually enjoy talking about themselves? So if I ask you about yourself, generally, again, there may be exceptions, but generally, do people not like talking about, oh, yes, I'd be happy, I'm from such and such, or I, I, Came over here 14 months ago or whatever. I mean, I I think most people, and again, there are exceptions, would like that. So if you hear an accent, I, I say go for it. Talk about it. And um, you may... <laughs> You may get all kinds of reactions, or you may, or you, they may tell you they have foreign accent syndrome and they're really, they really grew up on the next block from you, but they have this accent that came in. It's very interesting, though, how that would work. I mean, that's got to be studied, right? They've got to figure out how that can happen. Now, one thing I thought about with the foreign accent syndrome, I don't know how far back this goes. Was this a thing? like 200 years ago or 300 years ago, when travel was much more limited, when a person could go their entire life never hearing accents from very far away because there was no radio or television or recordings or anything. I mean, we've been exposed to a lot of accents. So if something happened medically to me right now, maybe my foreign accent syndrome would be like from some deep, dark recess of my brain where, you know, it would pull out something that was a distant memory, and I'd start talking that way. Maybe it would be Irish because I like that. I don't know. You probably don't get to pick it, right? Except with my question. You do get to pick it with my question. I'm in a quicksand, and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a Say the guy write to me uh, and say um, your transmitter is making some funny noises. That was not the transmitter. <laughs> Do I tell him what it is? Should I tell him what it was? Yeah, absolutely. Is, it too, is that too behind the scenes? Yeah. At the end of that last segment, um, I've got this this big um, RE twenty seven microphone. It's a beautiful microphone, but it's very heavy, and it's on this really cheap little. Um, 
bracket that is held in by one screw and it let go. And I caught it like, you know, I made like a basket catch, like a, you know, like an infield pop up. I just had to basically just catch the microphone and just kind of hold it up, finish the second. That's what you heard. So don't blame the transmitter. Blame, blame the two cent screw that, uh, let go. I never understood. What are these? These are probably, Dom, would you say $1,500 microphones? I would guess. Somewhere in that ballpark, at least, at least. But you held your Why own. Why would you I gotta, have a hundred dollar microphone held in place by one cheap little screw? I mean, that just seems weird, right? I don't build these things. I don't know, but it seems weird to me. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five or Jack at KTSA dot com. I feel slighted though because in the past, well, in the past, because there's this window that's in front of me that oh you would see it happen i, I yeah. can actually see it happen yeah you know, so. well we could uh, we could establish a video hookup but then i might get in trouble if i said something about the guys behind you so we probably probably don't want to do that um i do think i, I think in the future all these shows will be video as well as radio it's only a matter of time right we're gonna we're gonna get to that plus point. we don't want to know what you have or not what you have on Oh, I have everything on. I yeah, I, it's just I, I that'll be uh that'll be a, a dark day for me because if you're going to do that, you might as well be in television, right? Um so Don Lemon, speaking of television, Don Lemon, we talked about him yesterday, the CNN guy, still off the air. He's going to be back tomorrow on his morning show. And it says I, I'm fascinated by this word. You know, he's the guy that got in trouble for saying that Nikki Haley was past her prime and how dare she talk about politicians being past their prime and she's past her prime. And don't you know, he told his female co-host, don't you know that a woman is in her prime in her 20s, 30s, and maybe her 40s, and they, you know, gave him the evil eye and glared at him and argued with him, and CNN yanked him off the air. If you if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily... 40s, oh, I got another I'm not saying I agree with that. Uh, they say talk about <clears throat> talk about what you know. I don't think Don Lemon should be relying on Google for his uh, familiarity with women. But anyway, um, CNN put out a statement today saying that he is undergoing formal training, and that's the condition of his return to the air. Formal training in, in what? In being like a good person or being human is he like taking woman 101 what what kind of what what does that even mean and how debasing is it this is your employee all right you didn't fire him but you said we need to retrain you he's 57 years old formal training in what i mean it seems like maybe the formal training should come before you get your own show. It's hilarious. I mean, we've all been through various kinds of like HR things where you had to watch a video about workplace harassment or, you know, do's and don't. Is it something like that? Don't they already do that? I mean, every company has that. What is the formal training? I mean, I'm not a fan of his, but I'm kind of embarrassed for him. He would have to come go through formal training. Does he get like a little certificate? Does he print out a certificate afterwards? Hang it on his wall. 210 599 
it was kind of interesting. If you remember during the uh, State of the Union speech, there was that big brouhaha about Medicare. And... Oh, there goes the microphone again, Don. <laughs> Just broke again. Um, about uh, Medicare and Social Security. And remember that uh, Biden tried to suggest that uh, Republicans were in favor of cutting it, and um, they aren't. And I've been thinking about that ever since, because basically, if you're a Democrat, you think that was a really great moment for the Democrats. He, like, rope-a-doped the Republicans into the debate. And if you're the Republicans, you think it was a really great moment because you shouted down this falsehood that, that President Biden was putting out about your party. The the reality, and, and, and I'm sorry to say this, I don't want to upset you, but the reality is that Medicare and Social Security are on um, a bad trajectory, no matter who's the president, no matter which party is in power. Um, Medicare alone is one of the single largest line items in the U.S. budget, and Medicare spending is on track to double in just the next nine years. And to put it in perspective, it is just consuming the entire federal budget. So I guess what I'm saying is, and I think a lot of people would tell you this, and I'm no expert, but I've read a lot about this because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting to the age where this is in the the distant future for me, but not too distant. These things are going to get cut. They're either going to cut the benefits, or they're going to cut what they pay providers, or both, or they're going to raise taxes. And when that happens, you won't like any of it, and it will be chaotic. And it might be at the last minute, and it might be very dramatic. You know how politicians like to put things off to the last minute. But um, you don't really have a choice right now. In other words, if you're concerned about these programs, and by the way, surveys indicate that most people actually don't see Medicare and Social Security as like handouts. They're not seen like other government programs. They've been around so long there's so much an established part of our expectations. We know we pay into them that people actually feel differently about them. I'm just here to tell you, um, neither party is, is taking this seriously. They're both playing games with you. When they say the other party is a threat or the other party is not serious, neither of them are. In fact, I want to play for you something Joe Biden said about Social Security and Medicare in 1995 when he was a senator and they were debating the balanced budget amendment in the Clinton years. Take a listen to this, cut number six. When I introduced the budget freeze years ago, the liberals of my party said, it's an awful thing you're doing, Joe. You are all the programs we care about. You're freezing them. Money for the blind, the disabled, education, and so on. And my argument then is the one I make now, which is the strongest, most compelling reason to be for this, but this amendment or an amendment. And that is that if we don't do that, all the things I care most about are going to be gone. I mean, whatever happened to that old conservative discipline about paying for what you spend? I'm up for re-election this year, and I'm going to remind everybody what I did at home, which is going to cost me politically. 
I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth wow. time. Somebody has to tell me in here how we're going to do this hard work without dealing with any of those sacred cows. What? What happened to that Joe Biden? Where'd that guy go? He's bragging, he says, four times. I tried to freeze it. Republicans haven't tried once. I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't. But it turns out, when you read about this, that there were people in both parties, Biden and the Democratic Party, Chuck Grassley, who's also still in the Senate, in the Republican Party, they tried to put a freeze on all federal spending. They were fought during the Reagan years by Reagan. They were fought during the Clinton years by Clinton. But how interesting, right, that if you stay in politics long enough, it seems like you wind up on both sides of every issue. He's been around so long that time and again we find he's been on both sides of every issue. And you wonder, which is the real him? Like, is this guy the real him, or is this the Susan Rice, Valerie Jarrett, you know, uh, <laughs> Ron Klain, uh, stuffed pillow version of him, and the guy you heard from 95 is who he really is. Are you committing to or giving up anything for Lent. Lent starts tomorrow with Ash Wednesday. Um, 84% are doing nothing. You heathens. No, just kidding. Uh, 14% say they're committing to something for Lent, and 2% are giving up something. We'll have a new poll question tomorrow uh, at 4 on all our platforms, or you can find the JR poll anytime at ktsa.com. We talked a lot about uh, race on the show today. It just was in the news in a lot of different ways. And um, there's a bill in California to um, defund police dogs because they believe that police dogs are racist. I know we talked about this a little bit the other night. Um, but they were using the argument that dogs were used in the era of slavery uh, to hunt fugitive slaves. And since they were used by slave catchers, they are a violent reminder of our past, and they might trigger people today. And you don't need me to point out the oddity and the ridiculousness of that of that claim. Um, but I did want to mention, I recently read a book, speaking of slaves and hunting fugitive slaves, I recently read a book called The Underground Railroad. It's a novel. The author's name is Colson Whitehead. When this book came out a few years ago, it won a lot of awards. I just never got around to reading it till recently. He imagines that the Underground Railroad, which was a term for the network of people that smuggled and protected and transported and concealed fugitive slaves when they were leaving the slave states, they had to get to the free states. This was an actual railroad. It was an actual railroad running underground, built, operating under... I mean, it's a fascinating way of taking something literally and could it have actually happened. You read this, you learn a lot about 
slavery and um, the laws of the time and what it meant to escape, but also a really imaginative uh, treatment. The Underground Railroad, the author is Colson Whitehead. Um, we're back here tomorrow live at 4 or find our show as a podcast anytime where you like to find podcasts, The Jack Riccardi Show. <laughs>